I want to know this from you guys. How many of you went to school for one thing, right? And then decided to completely, after after really working at it, just throw it out the window, right? I mean, you're pre-med. You're killing yourself for years studying chemistry, biology. And then suddenly you're like, I don't want to be a doctor. I want to be an actor. God forbid. Uh, it takes a great deal of courage either way to walk away from something after you've invested a huge amount of time, energy, and and often money in becoming that very thing. And a lot of times, as you're trying to walk away, your family, your friends, they pressure you to stay in it. Oh, but you've spent so much time doing it. Wait a minute, what? I paid for this education. You're telling me no now? My guest today walked away from years of studying astrophysics. Yeah, he wanted to work for NASA to take the leap into the great but scary outer galaxy known as entrepreneurship. So his first effort was raising money for his invention, a coaster that refrigerates your drink when you put the glass on it. Okay, okay, cool. I like the idea. He was able to raise money for it, but then... He turned from refrigerated coasters to frozen yogurt. You heard me right. And today, Neil Hirschman is the CEO of the wildly popular frozen yogurt chain, 16 Handles. Neil, welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. Thank you so much for having me. So you earned your space on this podcast because of what you did and what you didn't do. And and what you did was you, you walked away from something that you had invested a lot of time in to take a flying leap on something that was not guaranteed. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've always loved frozen yogurt, so I think it's uh, somewhat guaranteed in a different way. But yeah, I definitely left um, a few different career paths behind throughout the journey. And uh, it was definitely a risk at some point and something even mentioned this, like my parents, I remember I brought up a, a memory is like, I remember when I first told my parents, oh, by the way, this is uh, the thing that I'm working on. And they were like, no way. Um, they didn't even, they didn't even know what 16 handles the brand was when I first bought um, my initial location in Murray Hill. And so uh, they thought I was kidding, to be honest. And, and, you know, now I look back on it now and, and my mom is like one of my best spokespersons. She she tells all her friends to go to 16 Handles. Okay, you got to back up. So you you wanted to be an astrophysicist, astronaut? I mean, is this what your plan was? So uh, the plan shifted a lot. At some point, I thought I wanted to go into um, oral surgery. And so when <laughs> I was choosing uh, a college, as between a few different ones, um, and I ended up choosing George Washington University and kind of flip-flopped and decided to go into uh, finance. And so I uh, started in the School of Business there. Uh, but the business classes, especially those like entry or introductory first years, they just weren't um, that interesting to me. And so part of the requirement was to take some kind of science. And so I took astronomy because space is interesting to everybody. Mm. Um but I met one great professor in that, and and he kind of changed my view on, well, maybe I could actually go into this field and and you know pursue it instead of just you know liking it and watching some videos on YouTube that I think are cool. And um, so that kind of changed my college uh, progression into studying both finance and astrophysics. And how deep did you go into astrophysics? Uh, so. Um, there was the the early part of the years or the early part of studies is mostly on the physics side um, because you have to understand the math to kind of understand everything else. Uh, and then the later part is the research. Um, and so I loved the research 
uh, especially in my you know senior and junior years of college. But um, after graduating, it was clear to me that you know to move on in that career path, you really need a PhD, and you need to spend the additional five seven years, um, oh. which are really research based, but but still um, you know in graduate programs. And I just I wanted to move on at that point. I actually graduated college early because I really just wanted to get started in my career. Um, and so I didn't see that as, uh, as what I was going to do then, but you know, it's always in the back of my mind that I love, um, astronomy. I love physics. I think, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, we as humans, as species need to get off this planet. And so I'd love to be part of the, you know, thinking behind that. Well, if you think about Elon Musk, and you think about uh, Sir Richard Branson, and even a guy like Bob Bigelow, who runs, uh, you know, uh, Bigelow Aerospace, where they make the floating space habitats, don't call them hotels, he gets really upset about that. I've talked to all of these guys. They all started in a totally different career. And later on in life, once they had made money to invest slash lose in the space industry, because it is a big risk. That's when they were able to do it. So there's still hope for you and and your parents thinking you were going to be my son, the astrophysicist. Uh, Let's get to after you're in finance for a little bit and then you think, I want to invent stuff. Yeah, I've always been entrepreneurial. Like even as a kid, I was starting uh, companies and and trying to sell my, you know, when I was super young, I was trying to sell my family different things. So I always felt that, um, that drive to kind of be out on my own with a company that I started. And so it made a lot of sense to, you know, kind of look at Kickstarter as a platform for like the drink induction chiller, uh, which is the product you were talking about. Wait, say it again. The drink induction chiller. The drink induction chiller. Does that still exist? Um, there are some out there. Uh, <laughs> These are the refrigerated no, I, coasters. Yeah, these I are like the, the idea. Yeah, I had, to, I had to move on from that because <laughs> I just thought there was uh you know, it was time for the next thing. Um, but that was a great, like, motivating factor to say, you know, at this career path in finance, I was working at a, a structured credit asset manager, really great job, um, loved the work, loved my boss. The issue that I had was just I'd see guys my dad's age working um, the same hours as me. And, you know, they were making great money, but they weren't happy or they weren't living kind of the work-life balance that I wanted to. Um, in my future when I was, you know, going to be older. And so it was like, to me, I just, I knew that probably wasn't the career path for me. Um, and so the, the, the Kickstarter was a great motivation to like say, okay, I'm ready to take this risk. And then, um, once I was there, it was, okay, now I have all this time back on my hands. What am I actually going to do with it? How did you then go from that to, I want to buy a yogurt franchise. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in hindsight, everything simple at the time, uh, it was probably just a mix of hearing a lot of things, seeing the brands that I thought were trendy and cool at the time. And I, I knew I wanted to go into something in food and beverage because there's always going to be a market for, you know, that's why at the beginning I was like, there's a guarantee for frozen. It's like people are always going to be buying dessert. People are always going to be buying um, food and and going to bars. And so, I knew that industry to have some kind of stable business is a great place to be. And so when I was shopping around, kind of what are the opportunities available? Um, I sat down with this yogurt shop that I knew so well because I had one right around the corner when I was living in the East Village. Um, and I would go there after the gym or or on a date or something. It's like it was just this cool spot, almost like Starbucks. Um, during the day, you go hang out there. At night, for me, it was always 16 Handles. 
Um, and so I knew this brand, uh, but I thought it was going to be too big of a brand for me to join. But, you know, then I sat down with them and, and realized uh, that they actually kind of needed some active leadership and, and somebody, uh, some new energy, really. And so to me, that was a huge opportunity. And that's why it was even more than the frozen yogurt. It was the opportunity was there. And, and that's why I uh, first bought the initial location. Well, let's talk about that. How much did that cost? Franchises are not cheap. Yeah. So I went into it. I actually acquired an existing location. So it's a little bit more of a, I guess, turnkey path into okay. franchising is, is I didn't build the store and, uh, you know, choose my real estate. It's, it's, this was a location that had been there, I think, at the time, maybe uh, eight or eight or nine years already. Um, so it was a very stable business. Uh, and from that side, I had financials and, and I could really prove it out. And so it made it a great candidate for an SBA loan. Um, and the, the SBA Series 7, uh, that specifically looks at businesses that you're kind of buying uh, that have an existing cash flow that can pay off debt, uh, that the buyers are looking to sell at you know a fair market value, and in this case, it was just a, a perfect buy. Um, and I had saved up some money and in, in you know some finance bonuses and uh, whatnot, so um, it didn't take a lot of cash. So you become the purveyor of frozen yogurt overnight. Tell me when things started to get hard. Yeah, so it first started with just this one store, and that's all I thought I was buying. So I thought, you know, this was just one turnkey business that I would hold as a passive income stream. Um, but of course, I needed to learn, you know, about it and figure out exactly why it wasn't operating at full efficiency and what that new active leadership role would look like. So I worked every day, um, open to close for three straight months. I didn't take holiday. Uh, I worked alongside the employees. Um, you know, who had been there for years. And, and so that's how I really figured out what the business was, um, figured out what the customers wanted and, and kind of how to holistically approach the business from, you know, being the person who knew what the books looked like, but also being the person who was cleaning the machines in the morning. And so, uh, you know, that, that took a lot out of me. I was working more during those few months than I had worked in my uh, finance career, which, you know, everyone says finance is where you work the most. But right. Um, but you know, that gave me the, the insight to realize that there was a lot of opportunity and a lot of, um, inefficiencies in the way that business was being run. And if I could flip that on, then all of a sudden it was a huge opportunity to make some money and, uh, sell a great product to, to a huge market. And then you're thinking, well, let me buy another one. And then another one, how many did you end up buying before you started running the whole darn thing. Yeah, so I bought uh, two additional locations um, in East Village and Chelsea, which were both uh, great locations. So I ended up buying the one that I used to go to as a customer, which was really cool. Um, and then I built one in uh, Tribeca. So that was a really great experience because I actually got to kind of go through the entire journey of picking my real estate to hiring contractors and then, of course, COVID hit in the middle of construction, so that was a nightmare. But Well, let's talk about that nightmare. A lot of people are cruising along, and then they hit a brick wall like COVID, and it's a wall nobody's ever seen before. Yep. How did you deal with that? Yeah, so uh, it was tough, and there were times where you were like, maybe I just step back from everything. Um, but when I looked at it, I had already sunk in money into you know, the initial contract fees, I've already, you know, done my DOB filings with the architectural drawings. And so for me, it wasn't really a matter of if I was going to proceed, 
it was how do I proceed as fast as possible without, you know, taking health risk or, you know, violating contracts, et cetera. So, um, I think at the end of the day, you can kind of will your way into anything. It just takes actually being there on the site. It's like if I was making calls to my contractors, but I was sitting at home scared, uh, you know, then they weren't going to show up. But if I was on site taking pictures every day and 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 you know working alongside them and and making sure everything got done, then I was in a much better position to actually uh, ensure that store got you know. The, the construction got finished and we were following the protocols we need to follow and, um, you know, see it through. And so we, we actually still got that store open, you know, not on its initial timeline, but only four or five months later. So, uh, relative to COVID where, you know, some people just shut down completely. We, we stayed pretty on track. Did you feel the pressure of employees who depended on you yeah, absolutely. for their income? That must've given you some sleepless nights. Yeah, it it really was difficult because um, it felt like COVID, you know, the initial pandemic, um, it was like three or four blurry days. And then all of a sudden it was everything's closed. There was like those days where you weren't sure what's happening and then it was just nothing left. And I wasn't sure, um, you know, do I keep my employees on payroll? Do I let them, you know, file for... Uh, I think New York, you know, put a few additional um, employment protection programs out there. So there were there were so many different ways to go around it. And one of the issues was nobody wanted to get in front of it and say, this is the right way to do it, right? Because nobody wanted to take that liability, um, you know, from a government agency or, or um, payroll company uh, standpoint. So it was kind of figure it out on your own. Um, and at that point, my team was probably... 40, 50 people. Uh, and I certainly didn't have income, you know, for, there was two whole weeks that we were completely closed. Um, because, you know, operating New York city stores in the middle of the pandemic, there was no one around and nobody felt safe eating anything. Uh, I remember I was ordering food, um, a few days, like, uh, like Chinese food or something. And I was still not sure if I was supposed to be ordering food. It's like, there was no, well, remember didn't know when we all do. wiped down the, yeah. the, <laughs> the groceries. Exactly. Oh my God. Well, there was such an unknown and yeah. so much fear. Um, and, and I'm sure you were sitting there thinking, how am I going to make payroll? So, so yeah, what I did was I ended up, um, after a few days of like, just kind of reading all the news and, and sitting back, I ended up, Using my the, using the time because you never have a retail store that's closed, and all of a sudden we had retail stores that were closed. So we started doing deep cleans on all the stores, um, repainting ceilings and walls, and like these little simple tasks that you always just throw around. And you're like, yeah, I'll get to them one day. These were the perfect days to do it. And uh, so me and kind of my core management team, we we you know safely and with masks on, uh, went to the stores and and did a few projects. And then I think about two weeks later, we opened up for delivery only. Um, which, you know, you're operating retail stores in New York who would think that you'd be delivery only. But of course, you know, that's what we're going to do to to make sure, um, you know, that we can meet our customers, but more importantly, meet our employees. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listen Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How'd you get the word out that, okay, we're now open, we'll deliver yogurt to you? Yeah, so... um... A bunch of ways, you know, what's great about buying into a brand that exists is we have a lot of communication already with our customer base. Um, But even on Grubhub, I use my Grubhub menu. Uh, The first, I think, 10 items weren't actually items. They were (laughs) mentions of what we're doing in our store to make sure that your meal is getting to you safely. And then I noticed when I started going on Grubhub and looking for food myself, I was seeing other people um, do the same thing, which is great. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was, you know, you kind of made it up, right? It was, it was all about making it up. But what was good is I was in my stores every day. And so, um, as perception changed and as the environment changed and as everyone started coming outside their apartments and, uh, all the people with their second home started coming back to New York, it was like, I was there experiencing it. And I knew kind of when we could open our doors again and when we could extend our hours again and, you know, hire some new employees back or, uh, whatnot. Well, it's one thing, Neil, to run one or two or or a dozen franchises. It's another to become the CEO of the whole shoot and match. How did that come about? Yeah, so um, that was the big project uh, for me that I realized pretty early on, but uh, it took some 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 time to get there. So, you know, the business had owners who had owned it for 14 years and they just didn't have that excitement and that fire in them. And so because of that, the business kind of plateaued and they were fine with that because they were getting their paychecks and and everything was stable. Uh, but for me, buying into this brand, I was like, this is the greatest Froyo brand there is. Like it's the cool place to hang out. If it's succeeding in New York, usually it's like brands succeed everywhere else and then they come to New York. Here's a brand that succeeded in New York and then started franchising outside of New York. Um, so it's really cool to see that. And, and, and for me, I was like, this brand has huge potential, but it just needs the right leadership. And so finally, um, coming out of COVID, it, it's obvious that to me that uh, with a updated, you know, refresh brand model and all these different business operating metrics that I've changed in order to make us a little bit more profitable as stores that I use myself and I passed on to some of the other franchisees in the system. It's like, if we actually tra- change the training guide and change the procedures to that, then we'll make our, our existing operators stronger. And that will buy me goodwill, of course, with the existing franchisees. But more importantly, we'll have the best uh, frozen dessert brand to to be able to scale nationally. And so that's what I believe we have. And uh, Again, I ended up using SBA funding to to buy out the business because it was a cash flowing business, um, and it just made a lot of sense. So you know the the timing made sense, and I think you know there's always this talk right now about there's there's so many businesses that are 
you know, for sale coming out of COVID. Um, and this to me was just like, this is such a great opportunity instead of operating the stores. And I still have 11 stores uh, that I operate, but I have, you know, a lot of managers who do the day-to-day -day with them. And so now my opportunity is to really take 16 handles and build it into the national Froyo chain. National Froyo. But at the same time, you're running 700 plus mile triathlons and climbing Everest. Dude, you climb Mount Everest? I did climb Everest uh, last May. Okay, the closest I've been is reading Into Thin Air by John Krakauer, where everybody yeah. tragically dies. And I mean, I was fascinated by the book. The whole time I kept thinking, why would anyone do this? The retinas in your eyes can freeze. Why did you do this? What was it that lured you there? Yeah, no, that's a great story and a great narrative. Um, but I love I, I love challenges. Um, and... Uh, and I like going all into kind of the things I do, and and that's the end goal. It's not like you know, uh, just going halfway there. It's, it's going all the way there. And to me, Everest, when I was really young, I I don't know exactly what happened, but I think it was a speaker at my elementary school who was mentioning Everest as kind of this, you know, whoever can climb that is you know, it, it can do anything, something like that. And so it stuck subconsciously in the back of my head, and I started doing endurance sports and triathlon um, at some point. And I realized through the endurance sports that, you know, my my fitness was up and I could start doing a little bit of climbing. And um, it was kind of a five-year journey where the end goal was Everest. And I wanted to do Everest in a very sustainable way. So um, that way I was climbing it myself and um, with a team, uh, you know, of people that I knew and, and, you know, we weren't kind of abusing any of the resources. We took our own trash off, et cetera. So, um, you know, in that time frame, I was able to actually kind of do it the way I wanted to do it and, and in an ethical way. But uh, at the end of the day, Everest is the only Everest. It's the only mountain that can be the highest, and that's why. What was it like when you made it to the top? You got past the Hillary yeah. step. I know all about Everest. Won't ever climb it, but the Hillary step, which is you think you've made it to the top, and then there's this sheer couple of feet straight up before you get to the top. Yeah, so uh, I usually explain my summit experiences. It was really cold, and I don't remember seeing much <laughs> because um, we had a really windy day. It was a uh, 40-mile-per-hour wind, so cold. there was ice kind of gusting into our, our goggles, and, and I had a layer of ice on top. So I saw more of the summit of Everest from the pictures I took um, on my camera afterwards than I did when I was actually standing up there. Because um, everything, you know, had that little blurry layer of ice. Well, I hear you but, get up there and then you say, okay, I'm here. Time to go down. Yeah. So I, I brought, I actually brought a 16 handles cup, believe it or not, to take a picture on the top. I was going to put some snow in the cup, but it, my hands were so cold. I wasn't, <laughs> you know, sure about my full <laughs> finger mobility uh, and, you know, your toes. And you can't check. You can't, it's not like you can right. take off your gloves and be like, oh, my hand's working great. It's like, you're you're stuck in uh, in your suit, and the best thing you could do to keep yourself safe is is stay in that and yeah. just kind of uh, bite down and and keep moving. And so, uh, I think we probably stayed on the summit for maybe uh, six minutes or so. Uh, but you know, the 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 real emotion actually came probably the day before we even left for the summit when we were on the South Coal Camp Four. Uh, just like being there and you know being so close to. Not just the top, but like knowing all the stories that ha have come from Everest and and all the journeys, and uh, that's that's when I actually got a little bit emotional about it, and and uh, yeah, it was a really great experience overall, and and I did it with one of my uh, 
one of my best friends now, or two of my best friends, I guess. And uh, yeah, we've stayed in touch, and and we always are, are WhatsApping um, old pictures and stories that uh, make us laugh. So it's it was funny more about, about the certain goals, and a lot of them are athletic, where people do them to prove to themselves they can go further than they ever thought they could. I was born with scoliosis, curvature of the spine. I was always told, you'll be able to do anything. You just won't run long distances. That always stuck in my mind. I thought, I want to do a marathon one day. And I completed the New York City Marathon. Took me five and a half hours, but I ran the whole way very, very, very slowly. Imagine starting running and then run for five and a half hours and then stop. Uh, I, I will say... I didn't do it for the health purpose. I did it to prove to myself that I needed to crack out of the mold that had grown around me. And that is what led me to a higher point in my career once I did the marathon. I don't need to ever do another marathon. But to me, and I think I'm hearing this from you, that helped you realize professionally you could go so much higher. Yeah, I think – you know, definitely setting hard goals and then achieving them and, and athletically is is nice because there actually can be this end point. Um, you know, sometimes with careers, it's like you think one career is what your goal is, but then by the time you get there, you already want the next thing. And that's true also, I guess, athletically. It's like with a lot of my racing, um, I say this is the race that I really want to do. This is going to be the last one. And then all of a sudden I do that one. And in the journey of doing it, I realized that there's another one that's longer or I could do my time better, whatever it is. Um, so, you know, there's always something next. But, yeah, it definitely is um, motivating to, like, to see that you can set these goals that seem impossible when you set them. And then all of a sudden you get there and it's like, uh, you know, they weren't even that hard at the end of the day. Or, yeah, that was hard, but I did it. Yeah. Okay, X. Everest, because a lot of our listeners are saying, this dude is totally Meshuganah. I am not climbing Everest ever. What do you feel is the best, most important lesson you have learned through all of your tribulations and your trials of really climbing to the top of what started as a single purchase of one store that you would tell people who have the dream of becoming something like what you've become? Yeah, I think um, one of the important things is to just believe that somehow dots, you know, the dots are going to connect um, on the journey and just experience the journey as it comes and take the opportunities instead of getting caught up on like small little failures or small little obstacles um, on the way there. And and not everything, you know, even in the 16 handles uh, transaction process, it's like it didn't go half the way I thought it, I expected it to. Um but I just kind of willed it through um, and forced it to go. And there was at least five instances where I made a call to somebody and said, this is not happening. There's just no way that, you know, whatever um, disagreement we were having, it's like, we're not going to be able to get through this. Impassable. Yeah, exactly. And then I slept and I came up with a new idea and boom, that was the way forward. And so, you know, looking hindsight, of course, 2020, it makes sense why why things happen the way they did. But um, on the journey there, it's just like you kind of got to will yourself um, through and just believe that as long as you keep taking the opportunities that are in front of you, uh, they'll keep you know pushing you forward as long as you know you stay on top of it. Absolutely. And now to the important stuff: the best, most popular flavor. 
<laughs> at 16 handles. What yeah, is it? So um, I hate that question because it's boring. People people still go for vanilla. Um, really? It's by far the most popular flavor. I like the, the original tart. Yeah, so tart is up there, but it's top five. Um, it changes a little bit in um, depending on the store. Cookies and cream, of course, also yeah. uh, is very popular. Birthday cake with the kids. Oh, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, tart is uh, popular. I love the mint chocolate chip. Uh, personally, but I grew up in a mint chocolate chip family, so um, yeah, that's not going to happen in my world at all. Uh, I will say, you guys have a pumpkin spice oat milk right now on yeah, the menu. Just launched Friday. I right? really kind of need to do some research and try that before I, I'm I, able to complete this entire. I would have brought some cups. <laughs> oh uh, we'll, we'll go walk over to the Times Square 16 handles and get some now. Deal, deal, deal. Thank you so much for telling your story, Neil. It, it's terrific, and I feel like you're not even close to being done. Well, thank you very much. It was great uh, being here talking to you. You guys, do you hear this? He he climbed Everest, but this guy's going even higher, it feels like. And one of the most important things that Neil just said to me that I feel is is really the heart of the matter. He said, at the end of the day, you can will your way into anything. Don't give up. Will it to happen? That's what successful people do, even at the darkest, most worrisome, most frightening times. Okay? That is my message through Neil, through all of our wonderful podcast guests to you. And I hope you take it and run with it. Thank you so much once again for listening. Please tell your friends that this is so inspirational. And it really does. These stories change people's trajectory of their lives. I keep hearing from listeners who say, Liz, this one just, uh, I mean, it blew me away. That one. Oh my gosh, I was ready to give up, but this helped me. So I hope you spread the word that everyone talks to Liz is, is something of a tool and a way to find future success. How's that? All right, I'll see you Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern. If you miss me, you want to see me on TV, Fox Business. I'll see you then. Have a great day. <laughs>